This morning we continue our series, Dear Church. We have spent the last several weeks and will continue to preparing ourselves for Easter and for Holy Week coming up soon, where we will celebrate both on the mountain uh, and here, um, the risen Savior Jesus Christ. Um, we have we have said we're going to take uh, this time to look at the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, and we're working through uh, two chapters at a time, uh, learning what we can from this culture, which has some similar parallels to our culture, uh, about how Paul would instruct this church in Corinth, but then how we would also learn from this letter as well. Today we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter. Chapters 7 and 8, fair warning, uh, like last week, uh, Paul's dealing with some heavy stuff here. I'll try to keep it as PG-13 for kiddos in the room, but that's why we have base camp across the street. So you send them over there, but earmuffs on some of the kids if you need to. All right. I don't see any little ones that maybe need earmuffs, but we'll, we'll be all right. Okay. First Corinthians 7, I'll start verses 1 through Now, for the matters that you wrote about. So apparently the Corinthians have written a letter to Paul as well. So for the matters that you wrote me about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And everyone said, what? Okay, I'm just... But, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul begins this part of his letter by saying this, Dear church, be devoted to one another in Marriage, be devoted to one another in marriage. If you remember last week, Paul ended his section talking about how you are not your own, even though the culture around them said, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Sort of like a culture maybe we know, okay? I can do whatever I want to do. Don't tell me what to do. That was that was the Corinthians motto. Paul said, no, 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 listen, just because you are free to do whatever you want, that does not mean you are your own. Jesus Christ died for you and you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. And so your whole life should be devoted to thinking about, well, how do I respond to being bought with a price? How do I respond to the fact that I've been bought at a price and the price was the body and blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? And he goes to a really tangible way that these Corinthians can do that by answering their question. And their question is, hey, 
is it okay for a man to have sex with a woman? Which you're like, that's a weird question, right? That's a weird question. But in their day and age, there was a crazy sexual ethic. We've already seen this in the last part of the letter. They had people within their own church who were doing things sexually that even the outside world would have said, wait a minute, that's not proper, right? And so they're living in this cultural context. I unpacked some of this even on Facebook on Wednesday night um, that you would go and offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Romans 12, Paul talks about this. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That that is what you would do to uh, at, at God and goddesses temples to temple prostitutes, temple prostitutes who were also the priests of those temples. So their sexual ethic was all over the place. And because of this, what we might be able to assume is that some of the folks were saying, maybe we should just stop it altogether. Right? Maybe we just shouldn't engage in this part of life. Maybe sex is bad. And Paul says, um, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations. That's, that, that, that's what you asked me. Is it good? Yeah. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He, he's going to dig down in this idea of that you were bought with your, you were bought with a price. You are not your own. And the first way that he does that is by saying, you belong to your spouse. You belong to your spouse. This is a phenomenal idea in this day and age. The women in the audience would have said, of course, because I'm like property. That's how it was in that day and age, right? But Paul goes further. He is so radical in this. He says, not only wives do you belong to your husbands, but husbands, you belong to your wives. It's crazy. The women would have been like, woo, yeah, we've been waiting for this day, right? And the men would have been like, now this is some curious teaching. We should do some more exegetical work on this part of Paul's letter. But what he's saying is this, be fully devoted to one another in marriage. Be fully devoted to one another in marriage. And he's saying it as a concession because the world they're living in is crazy. The sexual ethic in that day and age is crazy. They don't even know which way is up. And once again, this isn't real applicable for us in our day and age, I'm sure. But let's just say we were in a day and age where the sexual ethic was crazy. Let's just, let's just imagine a day where that possibly was. Where we didn't know which way was up. We just, it was just all this big muddle of gray, right? Paul would say, listen, Listen, as a concession here, in the midst of this, I want to teach you something very specifically. You should, you should have sex with your husband or wife. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And you should think about it selflessly. Right? This is the crazy part. You should think about it selflessly. Husbands should think about their wives' sexual needs. Husbands should think about their wives' sexual needs. And wives should think about their husbands' sexual needs. In that day and age, this is revolutionary. Right? Women existed just to appease their husbands sexually. This is a big part of it. But that was never flipped around until Paul is having this incredible conversation saying, no, 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 no. Listen, it's more than that. Follow the lead of Jesus. Right? The lead of Jesus who always thought of the other. 
who always cared about the other, who always thought about the needs and desires of the other. And he's saying here, here, let's model what I'm talking about. This, that you are not your own. You're bought with a price in your marriages. Be devoted to one another. Here's what that tangibly means for those who are married in the room. You, if you're married, you are a one woman man. And if you are a wife, you are a one. Yeah, come on. That's fine. Right. You're a one woman man. And on the flip side, right? You're a one-man woman, right? Come on. We clap for that too, right? I mean, oh, this is so hard. This is so hard. Let's be honest. Our world wants to tell you what the standard of beauty is, whether you're married or not. There are images that flash across your screen today on TV as you're just trying to watch March Madness that will tell you what the standard of beauty is. I still got time before your game, right? You just give me a, I got to get out of here for March Madness. I got you. Okay. But you will see, like, you will see, you will see cheerleaders in very short skirts with very revealing outfits dancing in a very provocative way probably this afternoon if you're watching basketball, right? Which has nothing really to do with basketball. Am I right? Right? They're not actually cheering at that point. They're like dancing. You're like, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, right? And it's not even subtle. This world is telling you, hey, there's these standards of beauty and, and, and men buy into this and women buy into this. We do. We say, if I don't look this way, if I don't make this much money, if I'm not this successful, if I'm not the standard of excellence and beauty for my spouse, that the world is defining, I must be missing the mark. Listen, that is not your standard of beauty. Married people in the room, look at your spouse right now. Do it. I'm serious. Married people, look at your spouse. That is your standard of beauty. That's your standard of beauty. You look at that person and you go... Wrinkly, that's my standard of beauty. Right? Brown hair, that's my standard of beauty. Long hair, that's my standard of beauty. Short hair, that's my standard of beauty. He used to be a little skinnier, that's my standard of beauty. Right? That's my person. Paul is saying be devoted. Be devoted in a way that the world will not understand. Right? This is not the way of the world. It's a simple little little section, but it's not the way of the world. The world would say to the Corinthians, um, people are objects. People are property. People are just there to be used for what you need. And Paul would say, no, 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 no. You exist for the needs of the other. Married people, you should hold fast to one another. We'll keep going. This is a fun one. Okay. Um, I'm going to do six and seven. I know that that is not uh, what's in your notes, but I changed it, so deal with it. All right. Paul goes on, verses six and seven. I say this is a concession, not a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. He goes on by saying this, be thankful for the gift of marriage or singleness. 
Or Paul would probably write it this way. I wrote it that way because I'm married. Paul would probably say, be thankful for the gift of singleness, or if you need to get married, get married. Right? That might be how Paul would, would say it, right? He sees marriage as a gift, and he sees singleness as a gift. And once again, this is something that we, oh man, in our day and age, I think we, we struggle with. Because, you know, if you're a single and you go to a wedding, right? Let's just be honest. And the pastor gets up and he, he reads from Ecclesiastes and he says something that is in Ecclesiastes. It says, two is better than one. And you go, come on, pastor. Like, thanks for singling me out, right? Right? And I, and I worry about this, honestly, in weddings. I don't want to make too little of weddings, but I'm also very aware, usually, of the single folks in the room and how that can feel on them. Because I think oftentimes we say marriage is the gift. I think we do. I mean, when I do weddings, I say, today we're here to celebrate the gift of marriage. Every time I do a wedding, I say that, right? Some of you, the singles, listen to me now. I just talked to the marrieds, right? Singles. Singleness is a gift. It is a gift. It is a gift from God. Jesus. Single. Paul. Single. You know how much of the New Testament we don't have with two single guys? Very little. We have very little left. Like a few pages here from like Jesus' brother, and that's like kind of it, right? We don't have any of these letters. The gospel accounts, they're not there. We have two single people. Two single people who absolutely changed the world. And Paul is saying, this is my gift. And I wish you were all just like me. He's not saying, listen, he's not saying, man, I wish someday I'd get married. If I could just find the right one, everything would be better. Which all the married people would be like, that's not true. Right? We know that, right? Right? It wouldn't. It's more complicated. And in some ways, it's great, but like, it's complicated, right? Paul, get into that. It's a gift. It is a gift. Married people, when you turn and look at your spouse, they are a gift from God for you. I don't want to underestimate that as, as well today. But single people, like nobody is ever going to complete you. Jerry Maguire was wrong. He was wrong. He was wrong. And so Paul says, listen... What is your gift? Know your gift. And what's implied here? If you get a gift, what? There's a giver. What? So, okay. Have you ever, have you ever been around somebody on like Christmas or the birthday who got a gift they didn't like? I love those moments. I just have a very peculiar sense of humor sometimes. I love the uncomfortability of the room and how the person sort of tries to play it off. I love being around kids who have already received the same toy from somebody else and they just blare out, I already got that one. That's that's like how four, five, and six-year-olds talk. Already got that one, Grandma. Right? And the beauty of the gift is that it's from the giver. We know this, right? 
And so I want to dig, I want to dig deeper into this, right? God has given you gifts and they're from the giver. Don't get fixated on the gifts. Be fixated on the giver. Don't be focused on the gifts. Be focused on the giver and accept the good gifts. If God is who he says he is, he is perfect and pure and holy, and he does not make mistakes. If that's the giver of the gift, guess what the gift is? It's pure. It's holy. It's perfect. And so don't look at the giver and say, I don't like what you've given to me. Right? I'm going to go hard on this, okay? Singles. Don't live like you're married if you're not. Don't do it. That's like spitting on the gift. Right? There is no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as casual sex. Like, when you have sex, it is the most intimate thing that you can give to somebody else. In a very tangible way. You cannot be closer to someone else than during sex. Right? From a physiological standpoint, that is the closest that you can be to anyone ever. And that is a gift, but it may or may not have been given to you yet. And I don't know anybody who ever died from not having sex. Can I just say that? I, I don't. I don't. I do. I do know people whose life expectancies went way down because of their sexual ethic when they were younger. And things that happened because of that in terms of diseases, right? And I don't want to come down too hard. There is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. But there needs to be truth, right? We talked about this last week. I'm not going to just give you grace, 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 grace. Because Jesus didn't. He said grace and truth. Full of it. Right? So when the gift is given to you, receive it well. And when the gift is something else, don't try to receive or take another gift. Right? You don't get to steal somebody else's gift because you think you should have it. You should wait on the gift that has been given to you. You should receive the gift. You don't even need to wait. You should receive the gift that has been given to you right now. So be thankful for the gift of marriage or singleness. We'll continue. It's getting heavy in here. All right, here we go. We're going to make it. You can send your email to Lori Venepps. 11 at gmail.com. Okay. Now to the unmarrieds. And the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Once again, he's, he's reiterating this. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than burn with passion. I, I'm going to keep going, but I want to stop just for one second. Somebody told me I had the gift of singleness. And I was like, I'm going to show you a passage in 1 Corinthians that proves that I'm not. Um, so I was like, I really like my wife. Okay. Um, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, 
If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you do, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your Wife, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do you think he's trying to make a point? He's said that twice now, very shortly. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Paul continues, Instead of being distracted by your circumstances... It's the first part. Instead of being distracted by your circumstances, let's talk about circumstances. Um, this is this is this is heavy. Like you should go back and read this today. You really should, right? This is heavy stuff, and and I want to I want to lean in pastorally because so in 1969, the state of California passed a law, and that law was called the No Fault Divorce, and it changed our nation. The no-fault divorce meant that you could come to a court and you could say, essentially, like, we just don't like each other anymore. Like, this just didn't work. There was no, they didn't need to prove a reason. They didn't, there was no, there was no fault there. And every state has adopted that since 1969. And I I just want us to all um, know what's in the room right now, because this is really important, okay? If, if you, your parents, or some loved one, has been through a divorce, please raise your hand. Uh, nice and high for us. Everybody, whoever, whoever has been affected by that, please look around. There's very few hands down, right? Um, most of us have been affected by this, right? Most of us. And, and those of you who didn't raise your hand, you were probably sitting next to somebody that did raise their hand, which means you actually are, right, in some way, shape, or form connected to that divorce. And so Paul takes some time to unpack, to unpack divorce. Um, and, and he sort of is hearkening back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, Jesus says, you've heard um, that when you uh, get divorced, you give a certificate of divorce. Um, but he says, um, well, let me read it straight for you. I don't want to mess Jesus up. He'd be mad about that. 
Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of a divorce. You have heard it said. But I tell you, anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And Paul's unpacking this because there's a lot of questions about that, right? And they're going, wait a minute, like, okay, so how does this all work? We've got non-believers marrying believers. We've got this mixed culture. And, and how does th- this is really complicated. When is it okay to get a divorce? When is not okay to get a divorce? Jesus says, other than adultery, that's essentially it. And, and, and Paul goes at, Paul goes at some specifics here. Okay, and I want to unpack those. So, so Paul essentially says, hey, divorce should be the last resort. Should be the last resort. Like, you should try to stay married. That's what he says. You should try to stay married. Even if your wife is an unbeliever, yeah, you should try to live at peace with them. Even if your husband is an unbeliever, yeah, yeah. You, you don't know if you might actually be a part of the salvation of that person. Is that hard to hear? Absolutely, that's hard to hear. Do you think that was hard for them to hear? Absolutely. But Paul says, listen, if the unbeliever says, nope, I can't be a part of this anymore, then, then the believer can say, okay, Okay, you can, you can go, right? Um, Jesus hearkens to this as well, and I'll unpack this. When, when Jesus says your spouse commits adultery and is not repentant, right? That's just insinuated in everything Jesus says. Jesus always believes in repentance, right? So if your husband or spouse commits adultery and is unrepentant, does not want to fix things, does not want to um, make things right again, then you also have the right to um, to be divorced. And, and here's the heart of it, and, and I want to be super, super, super sensitive to this because of, of what's in the room, right? I want to be pastoral here. Um, God hates divorce, and, and I know those of you who have been through them hate it too. I know you do. Like, I've seen, seen what it does to your families. I've seen what it does to your kids. I've seen what it does... Um, to your friendships and, and, and to relationships around. It, it, it's a ripple effect and it's so incredibly hard. And that's why God, God hates it too. But, but there are moments, Paul would say and Jesus would say, when that marriage, that two becoming one has become so fractured that, that there's no way for the two to become one anymore. And so there should be a deep sense of repentance for that. There should be this deep sense of remorse for that. And there should be this deep sense that God can do something better still. Like for for those of you who have been through this, God, God can do something through this. Let me give you one thing he can do. If you have been through a divorce, guess what? You're single now, right? Which means what? You don't have the distractions of the spouse. Like, you're like Paul again. This is a gift. I know it doesn't feel like that. And I know you're like, that is just... I can't hear that right now, Brian. But listen, I'm telling you right now. You can have an amount of undivided devotion that you you never had before. I've seen this. I've seen this in strong Christians who have gone through divorce that has actually drawn them closer to God. And I think there's there's still lots of room for redemption. 
Um, Pastor Nielsen preached this story uh, this uh, in our last series, and he said, just because you can't see the whole picture doesn't mean that there's not a whole picture. Just because you can't see the full picture doesn't mean there's not a full picture of what there's going to be. So instead of being distracted by your circumstances, right? These really difficult issues. Um, instead of that, verse 25 now about virgins, I have no command for the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it would be good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, you, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you from this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't. Those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if it were not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man, he's concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. I, I'm not going to ask for an amen. Okay, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim to be devoted to the Lord in both spirit, body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world. How she can please her husband. I'm, amen? I'm just, I, I was going to ask for it there. And the, come on, women. Amen? Okay. I say this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in, this is so good, undivided devotion to the Lord. Instead of being distracted by your circumstances, be devoted to God. Be devoted to God. See, this is why he loves singles. Singles, you have the opportunity for a singular devotion to God. Right? Any married person can attest to this. And it's, it's not a bad thing because it's our gift, right? Married people, that's your gift. Single people, that's your gift. But part of the gift of marriage is being concerned with the welfare of the other, correct? We already covered that. You've got to co- be concerned with the welfare of the other, which gives you what? Less time to be devoted to God. It does. There, it's, it's, you have divided devotion. And that's your gift, and that's okay. But that's why Paul's so high on singleness. He says, listen, if you're single, you have the opportunity for undivided devotion to God. And I just find this to be the most important thing in life. That's all it is. I just find this to be the most important thing in life, our devotion to God. I think in my life, if I could just 
get rid of those distractions and focus more clearly on Jesus, this situation, this circumstance, this moment would be better. And I would recognize, like Paul said, it's fleeting anyway. And we live in a world filled with distractions. You've got a thing in your pocket that's going to ding. And you're going to look at it 160 plus times possibly today, right? And, and, and let's, just, let's just call it what it is. It's a distraction. A lot of the reason it's dinging, a lot of the reason you're looking at it isn't because it's that important. We didn't have them that long ago. And life somehow went on. Like it was crazy, right? Like a whole generation doesn't know this. They, they see this thing that has holes in it and you go like this. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about at the moment. And it's, it was a phone. And if you messed up midway, you were like, oh no! And you used non-Jesus-y words because you had to start the whole thing over again, right? We're distracted people. I, I think I think one of the best reasons to come to church is so that you get an hour undistracted. Honestly. I think about this on such a regular basis. You get to come here. You get to focus on God's words. You get to pray. You get, to, you get to focus in an unfocused life. You get to get rid of distractions. This worship team, I'll tell you right now, the reason they exist is to help you minimize distractions in your life so that you may see Jesus clearly, which happens to be the most important thing in life. So instead of being distracted by your circumstances, be devoted to God and... you got to go... Now, I'm on 8, chapter, eight, 8, verse 1. Now about food, sacrifice idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Or he's sort of quoting the other quote. I have the right to do anything. But knowledge puffs up while love builds. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in this world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, they're not capitalized by the way, yet for us there was but one capital, God the Father, from whom all things, things came and whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to the idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, and we're no better if we do. Be careful, however, that, you, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. 
When you seek against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Instead of being distracted by your circumstances, be devoted to God and be devoted to others before yourself. So in that day and age, lots of festivals, and they're not far from Athens. We talk, we covered this earlier in the series. Athens, where you've got all these temples to the gods, right? Greek god Zeus, Athena, the Parthenon, all of these gods. And what happened there is they would often have festivals in the names of these gods, both at the temples but also out in the streets. And in that day and age, a lot of the food actually came from those moments, right? So there wasn't... There wasn't Safeway or whatever, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't Roxy's. You couldn't go to Roxy's and pick up your Roxy's, right? And so food was somewhat scarce. And so when they would have these festivals and feasts, there would actually usually be a lot of extra food. And so people would collect these food and they would live off of this food and it would create substance, substance for them. And it would be very helpful for them in their life. And, and Paul's saying, this is causing some confusion among you. Right? Because some of you recognize that these aren't really gods at all and it's just food. And so you grab that food and you eat it. But you have other people who aren't as mature in the church as you and they see you eating it and they think, huh, that guy can eat something that's offered to this God. I can eat something offered to that God as well. And Paul is saying, listen, it's not about food. Okay? That's what he's saying. It's not about food. But what he's also saying is, Don't let God be your belly. Right? You need to see what your appetites are. What do you hunger for? What do you thirst for? And you should be aware of what someone who is in your congregation, someone who is in your life, a brother or a sister, what their weaknesses are, what their appetites are, what their hungers are, and... You should think of them before you think of yourself. You should think of them before you think of yourself. Let me give you a really simple illustration, right? Um, I, I try to make this practice... Um, uh, there's, I, I don't think there's anything um, incarnately wrong with um, alcohol. Uh, so uh, if you do, once again, LoriVanEps11 at gmail.com. Um, but... Um, <laughs> I think Jesus made water into wine at his first miracle, right? So like, uh, maybe it's not so, you know, okay, maybe it's okay. But I'll say this. If I know that I'm dining with someone and they're an alcoholic and they're in recovery and they're trying to, like, they need, they, they, they need to be free from that. I, I don't sit around and go, hey, throw me some beers in front of that person. I don't. I try to be respectful of what's going on in their life. I'm not going to bring them a bottle of wine just because I'm trying to be nice for the dinner that we're eating. It's not going to happen. Why? Because we're called to love others more than ourselves. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, instead... 
I'm going to sum it all up. Instead of being distracted by your circumstances, be devoted to God and be devoted to others before yourself. It's not about sex. It's not about food. It's not about money. It's not about success. It's about devotion. And God would say, be devoted to Him and be devoted to one another. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Jesus is sitting around with some religious leaders and they're questioning him and they're kind of trying to trap him. And so they say to him, Hey, Jesus, what's the greatest, what's the greatest commandment? A whole bunch of commandments, over 500. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And Jesus says, I can sum them all up. I can sum them all up for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Be devoted to God and love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets and all the law hang on these two commands. Scott McKnight wrote a great book called The Jesus Creed. I highly recommend it. He said the Christian life can be summed up in these commands. Love God and love others. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be lovers of you and lovers of others, that we would be devoted to you in our marriages, that we would be devoted to you in the gift of singleness, that we would be devoted to you in our interactions with Christians and with non-Christians, that we would be devoted to you and focused on you every single moment of every single day. God, would you silence the distractions? And would you become more and more clear in our sight? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.